Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 55. I'm Tiernan Dieb and sadly on this week's Easter podcast there is no mention of Easter in this week's show. Despite me generally being a good egg, this podcast being constantly full of yolks and my wholehearted belief that Easter weekend was indeed the first recorded incident of a zombie outbreak. I'm sure that's going to upset many people that there's no mention of Easter in this week's special Easter show. And if you have any complaints about the lack of mentioning of Easter even once in this week's Easter podcast, please do complain to Easter mentions at Easter.Easter. Yes, last week started with the Prime Minister and barely conscious synth Theresa May and Labour leader and old man Marley stand-in Jeremy Corbyn both making statements condemning the National Trust for running an Easter egg hunt that didn't say the word Easter in it, even though all its marketing said Easter on it. Yes, really. This story was all started by the Archbishop of York, a man who ardently believes in something that no one has proof of existence of and yet can't seem to see things that are actually there. The National Trust renamed their Easter egg trail, which they run in conjunction with Cadbury's, as the Great British Egg Hunt, which is an obvious error because we all know you're only supposed to stick the word great on badly planned Brexit policies in order to distract people from how vacant of ideas they are. Theresa May said this lack of Easter in the thing that definitely said Easter was completely ridiculous and that Easter is very, very important. And she's right, because let's face it, by April everyone's bloody knackered and needs at least a few days off. Sorry, Jesus who? Theresa May made that statement from Saudi Arabia, a country that currently sentences people to death for converting to Christianity, but she didn't seem to mention that, which is odd. Though, on the plus side, I guess in Saudi Arabia, as a result of that sort of thing, they probably just eat their chocolate eggs without any concern for what's written on them. Jeremy Corbyn said that Cadbury shouldn't take over the name of Easter because, you know, as we all know, the chocolate company are currently trying their best to rename the South Pacific country Cadbury's Dairy Milk Island. Then, to make it all worse, Liberal Democrat leader and pop vinyl of a real politician, Tim Farron, made a load of bad egg puns to say what a waste of time all this was. And to be fair, he was indeed right, as it's not a real story and actual news was happening elsewhere and no one seemed to be paying any attention to how the Archbishop of York, who brought up the story in the first place, actually does many adverts for the real Easter egg company, who give a little picture of Jesus in the Easter story with their chocolate eggs, because, you know, nothing makes chocolate more tasty than by reading about how a man was killed for his beliefs and then terrifyingly came back from the dead and now of course they've got a lot of free promotion out of this yay 
Meanwhile, in the real world, US President and Teratoma in a suit, Donald Trump, decided to launch airstrikes on Syria in a situation that very much feels like calling in Godzilla to help because King Kong is destroying the city. It was in retaliation to a horrific chemical weapons attack on Syrian people from Assad's regime that killed many. Trump said the images of beautiful babies killed by toxic gas prompted him to act, but obviously not act enough to stop trying to implement travel bans to allow any of those beautiful babies to escape and seek refuge in America. You almost wonder if Trump only wants to save Syrian lives so he isn't denied the kick he gets out of seeing their disappointed faces when they get detained at US airports. The UK have blamed Russia for the chemical attacks and cancelled a Moscow visit from Foreign Secretary and star of 1992 film Beethoven, Boris Johnson, and are planning harsh sanctions against Putin. Russia have responded to this and further Trump plans for more airstrikes by saying if they're given an ultimatum to remove their troops from Syria, it will result in a real war, prompting many Syrians to wonder what on earth they've been enduring for six fucking years. So it does feel like something is brewing and sadly it's much less a cup of tea and more a big old mug of war. And really, war, what is it good for apart from some slightly better approval ratings for the orange wrecking ball that is Donald Trump? Theresa May met with the Saudi crown prince without wearing a headscarf and therefore disobeying strict Saudi Arabian rules on female dress. May said she wanted to be a role model to Saudi women because, you know, there's nothing more inspirational than showing that women can have as much disregard for human rights as men do if it means far better arms deals. Disgraced Liam Disgraced Fox the Disgrace met with the controversial president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, and said that they have shared values. Duterte's war on drugs has killed 7,000 people to date, so I'm assuming Liam Fox meant they have shared values because it's clear neither of them have their own ones to abide by. Oh, and Ken Livingston has been suspended for another year after still being unable to do a TV interview without mentioning Hitler, as though it was some sort of awful bet as part of a very zero-sum game. 229 Labour MPs have signed an open letter saying the decision not to expel him is against the party values, and 107 MPs and 48 Labour peers signed a Jewish Labour movement statement criticising the suspension only being a year rather than being a full expulsion. Yes, and it does all seem really odd that they haven't taken harsher action. I can only assume that Labour are planning some sort of clever vote-winning scheme involving Ken winning mastermind with his very specific sort of specialist subject. So, uh, hello, Podchamps, and thank you again for listening to my weekly shoutings. Uh, Now, if you're regular listeners, you may have already noticed something different on this week's show, uh, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, If you're not a regular listener, you may not have noticed it at all, because you don't really pay attention. And if you're not a listener, then you smell, and I can say that, as you'll never know how I win. Anyway, uh, what I mean today is that by the time that this gets to your ears, there may be an advert or two popped into the mix. (gasps) I know, adverts, I know. Because I'm pleased to say, fanfare please! Partly Political Broadcast has joined the podcast platform Acast, which is home to some of my many favourite listens, including Adam Buxton's podcast and Scroobius Pip's excellent distraction pieces. Um, Anyway, uh, I'm very, very pleased to be on their platform, and what they do is they get this show out to loads more people, and in return they stick a few ads on here, which uh, then hopefully I become a billionaire from, and then I drastically change all my weekly content so it's all pro-tax avoidance and yes, yes, neoliberalism, how great that is and no no I'm only joking um, really very little is going to change at all Acast are a nicely ethical bunch uh, they don't do adverts for any evil types and really if you do spot something being advertised on here that I'm opposed to you know say like BAE Systems new onesie with extra pockets for all their missiles or George Osborne's guide to having six jobs and failing at all of them then do let me know and I will have words and get them removed apparently I'm allowed to do that uh, I say now I've, I've, I've sort of read the contract um, but what this hopefully does actually mean is that I will occasionally earn a wee bit of cash from this podcast which would be nice and then I can use it to buy better recording
recording things and make this show all a little bit sharper for you. Um, of course, of course, I should say that this doesn't mean you shouldn't still chuck money to the Patreon if you can, as fanfare, please. I've finally added a video to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, which I'm hella proud of, and uh, warning slash incentive to watch. It does include a partially naked me at one point. Um, and really, even if you don't want to donate to the Patreon, please go there and check it out, because uh, I'm quite pleased with it. It was filmed by uh, Bob Pipe, who is a very excellent uh, filming directory editing person. He does all those things. I don't know what the term is. Um, I've also added some new bonus items for donators on the Patreon with more to come. So if you do want to donate even just a pound a month, that would be so very helpful uh, please do head to patreon.com forward slash purple bro um, also big thanks to Martin who donated to the Kofi page last week at ko-fi.com forward slash purple bro and while this is a free podcast and it will remain so um, anything you can chuck my way a, a tiny as donation as it is uh, whether it's a one-off donation via the ko-fi.com uh, account or regular donation via patreon it really does help me buy supplies for my illegal zebra meat wagon racket I mean sorry uh it does help me spend more time improving this show. And if you don't fancy donating, then why not give the show a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or even on LinkedIn, you know, just to surprise anyone that ever bothers to look at it, that anyone puts content on there. I log in on LinkedIn about once a year to find a ton of people have congratulated me for my anniversary of working at Tin and Yeb Incorporated idiots that's not a real thing how obvious does it have to be so yeah uh, please please do a review thank you ubu bidu uh, in other news uh, i don't have a sore throat anymore but instead i do have hay fever Ooh. so you'll be pleased to know i've edited all the sneezes caught by plant spunk that i did during the show But instead of taking them out entirely, I've put them all together into a soundbite for you here. Yeah, I don't know who the high pollen count is, but when I find the castle he lives in, I'm going to have some serious words. Preferably very rude ones. Also, um, do you remember Simple Politics? Do you remember them? You know the brilliant website that I keep banging on about on the show, even though they don't pay me anything for advertising because I'm a chump? Um, but no, they, they're brilliant, Simple Politics. They very clearly explain UK politics, and Tatton Spiller from the site has been a guest on this podcast a couple of times explaining Brexit. Uh, you remember them? Well, this week, they are running a free academy on politics that you can sign up to by emailing, get this, academy at simplepolitics.co.uk. Um, and then they're going to send you details on how to find out what each day focuses on. By the time you've listened to this, you'll obviously have missed Monday's one. It depends on when you're listening to this in the week. You may have missed a few days. Um, but Monday's one was all on the different political ideologies, from socialism all the way to fascism and you should be able to go back and look at some of those things and some of the interesting chats and explanations that occurred on the Academy WhatsApp group as a result. Um, I'd highly recommend for some thoughtful and very educational chats. You know, do you remember that sort of stuff? The stuff that used to happen before 2016? Oh, it was brilliant. Lastly, uh, I've got two previews of my Edinburgh show coming up at the all-day Edinburgh Preview Festival at the Good Ship in Kilburn in London on April 23rd. Uh, I'm on at 4.30pm with my show, but there are loads of other great acts on throughout the day, uh, including Keith Farn and Abigail Shaman, uh, Finn Taylor, loads of good people. And it all starts at 1pm and goes all the way till 11pm. And tickets are free, and you can grab one at tickettext.co.uk. So that's pretty good, isn't it? Um, then I'm at the ever-wonderful, and I never pronounce this right, McCunliffe Comedy Festival, which is in 
deepest Wales, uh, and I'm on on April 29th at 12.30pm in the afternoon, which, yes, is early, but it means I can spend the rest of my evening uh, drinking local brews and debating whether or not to buy an antique barrel, which is what they sell there. Um, you can grab a ticket for that show at Mac Comedy Fest, that's M-A-C-H comedyfest.co.uk, and hopefully see you there. Right, on this week's show, I am speaking to Alison Garnham at Child Poverty Action Group about the effects the new benefit cuts are going to have on child poverty levels. Uh, I'm going to be looking at the Syria mess, and there is, of course, a wee bit of Brexit. So, yeah, you know, all prime comedy subjects. I went to see Charlie Brooker do a masterclass in writing at the BFI last night, and he said that while satire does help you feel sane when everything's going wrong, it probably does also scratch an itch that shouldn't be scratched, as it makes people laugh rather than engage in civil protest. So, you know, on the plus side, if this week's show on child poverty, impending war and the collapse of the UK doesn't make you laugh, then hey, at least we could all be engaging in a French Revolution-style overthrow of Parliament by Wednesday, right? You know, so either way, before all of that, there is, of course, this... New rules have come in since April the 5th that mean all UK companies with more than 250 employees must publish data on their gender pay gaps. The UK gender pay gap is currently 18.1% for all workers or 9.4% for full-time staff. But you know men need that extra cash, right, for all the energy they expend typing tweets to women that start with, actually, I think you'll find. And because mansplaining everything is like a job within itself, right? What you don't understand, I'll tell you. Uh, The UK ranks 20th on the World Economic Forum gender pay gap report, and so motions like this one are a small progressive step. Although all companies are asked to do at the moment is present data, not actually do anything about it. So it's actually just one of those really tiny steps, like one of those ones kids use so that they can get onto the toilet. At the moment, big companies are just publishing data, probably making female staff do it, and then make them see how little they're earning compared to their male equivalent for the same work, and then leaving it at that, which sort of feels a bit like it's rubbing it in. The government have urged, although it's not compulsory, for companies to also publish an action plan of how they'll reduce their gender pay gap, which they can then ignore because, ugh, the women's with all their but I do as much work as you, why do I get paid less, blah blah blah. I wonder why the government didn't actually go further and introduce a bill like Iceland are trying to introduce, where firms have to prove that they offer equal pay to employees or they get fined, which is kind of the sort it out now to the UK's, um, I think you have an equality problem, uh, okay, don't worry about it, bye. While the Women's Equality Party have said that this law can be used to address unconscious bias within a company, critics have pointed out that this doesn't really address a lack of women in top roles in companies, nor does it address what is essentially a motherhood pay gap, where women take maternity leave, which is paid not as well as full-time work, and then return to part-time work, which is obviously paid not as well. And all of that could be fixed by a policy that created more paternity leave, or perhaps more shared leave between parents, or, you know, by making work compulsory for babies. Okay, well, that last one seems harsh, but I've seen the trailers for Boss Baby, so it's totally doable. Ah, then again, Boss Baby is a male baby. Oh, God, this problem is everywhere. So, more needs to be done, especially as if Deloitte have predicted, the gender pay gap will continue until 2069 if we stay as we are. Still, on the plus side, with this gender pay gap data releasing policy, all those men who are certain that there isn't a gender pay gap at all and wonder why we need this rule can either boringly say at the end of it, oh, I told you so to every woman when companies unlikely prove that there isn't one, or far more likely shut up when it's proved that there is, and maybe when their bosses realise they've spent all day telling women online why it exists, they'll have their pay dock, thus fixing the gender pay gap, albeit in a very much the wrong way. 
while tiptoeing towards equality progression on the one hand, the government are very much using the other hand to wave a massive middle finger at it. The HMRC and Department of Work and Pensions, who I'm now certain are an office full of tin men trying to find the Wizard of Oz to ask for a heart, have revealed an eight-page document dubbed the Rape Clause that women will have to fill out to receive tax credits if they've conceived a third child through non-consensual conception. The two-child policy, which I discussed with this week's interviewee a little bit later on in the show, stops tax credits for families with more than two children. But it has an exemption for a child conceived through rape, which sounds good. But it means that civil servants now have to assess whether it's a valid case, which sounds bad. It asks such sensitive caring questions as to whether or not the claimant's circumstances, as described by them, are consistent with a number of statements about non-consensual conception and control or coercion. You know, really caring, sensitive stuff. It couldn't be any less sensitive and cold-blooded unless it asked what they were wearing and if perhaps they think they should drink less. A number of psychologists have written an open letter to the government against the clause saying it could cause psychological trauma and harm to rape victims. The law was put through as a statutory instrument so it didn't have to pass through Parliament and now several MPs, including SNP Alison Thewlis, are trying to push for an urgent question in Parliament about it. A government spokesperson has responded by saying their benefit changes will be delivered in the most compassionate way. Ha! Why do I get the feeling that all that means is that when your eight-page document is rejected because they don't believe you've provided enough evidence to support your claim, that they'll tell you it's rejected with sad puppy eyes and an awkward sorry? I think compassionate conservatism can again join the ranks of other ironic terms, you remember, like living wage and affordable housing. I mean, on the plus side, once you read all conservative slogans in that way, you do feel a lot more prepared for the future. I mean, for example, we have a chance to shape a brighter future for Britain really means you'd better go and buy a tonne of candles to get through what will clearly be a modern-day dark ages. Give it a try. Everyone's least favourite health secretary and cheese string with a face, Jeremy Hunt, has scrapped NHS 18-week waiting list targets. I bet if Hunt played football, he'd move the goalposts to encompass the entire world, so if a ball ever went in the net, he'd scream it was a success. There has been no public consultation on the scrapping this target or parliamentary approval of it, and so Shadow Health Secretary John Ashworth has accused Jeremy Hunt of breaking the law as it breaches the NHS Commissioning Board and Clinical Commissioning Group's Regulations 2012, something that Jeremy Hunt has probably never read and is probably using as a prop for his office golf putting set. I really wish I could do that. You know, sorry, but I've decided I've scrapped the deadline target for me to pay my tax this year. No, no, I've not checked that with anyone. It'll be fine, yeah? NHS England has said that it was made clear that the targets do still remain in place to attain by 2020, but it was loosened just for the next year. Presumably because if enough people aren't seen for medical issues for the next 12 months, there's every chance they won't be around by 2020, thus making the 18-week waiting time a lot more attainable due to a greatly reduced list of patients. Ah, April. Flowers bloom and fire pollen into people like me with terrible allergies. Animals that you aren't that bothered about give birth to tiny, cuter versions of themselves who you then care about for a month and then eat them a month later. And no one really knows what jacket to wear because whatever you choose, it's never quite right for the weather. Oh, and it's that wonderful time of the year when the Conservative government like to start all their favourite policies to make your life worse, because nothing buffers the impact of benefit cuts like sunshine, then suddenly rain, and then really hot sunshine, then oh god, how is it raining again, and now suddenly it's cold? On April the 6th, the two-child policy came in, cutting tax credits to families with more than two children, as well as cuts to bereavement benefits, because why cry over the death of a loved one when you can worry about having enough for you and your child to eat instead? You know, it's like the government's version of relieving the pain of banging your toe, by cutting off your face. 
People off sick from work will now lose £30 a week on employment and support allowance, and low-income couples who have children will now lose the family element in tax credits. The biggest effect of all this is that the Institute of Fiscal Studies expects child poverty to increase by 50%, and with around 100,000 children already in poverty 2015 to 2016, that is quite the increase. Now, I'm sure you're listening to this thinking, lazy, lazy children. Why don't they go back to sweeping chimneys and putting their tiny hands into terrifying industrial machines like the good old days and earn a living instead of expecting to eat decently, learn things and grow up to benefit society? Bloody scroungers. Or hopefully you're actually thinking, wow, this is really shit. Kids are brilliant because they're like tiny versions of people who need looking after. So what on earth can we do? Well, Labour this week proposed a VAT tax on private schools to provide free meals for all primary school children, which would actually help a lot of families provide their kids with one healthy meal per day. When asked if this was a good idea, Theresa May dodged the question, as in a neoliberal society, she probably believes that unless state school children have Easter scrawled across their face, they should have to fight for their food with only one child surviving and thus being allowed a sandwich. This week, I spoke to Alison Garner at Child Poverty Action Group, who explained to me what child poverty actually means, what the effects actually are, and exactly how to tackle it. Though, I have to be honest, it doesn't sound like it's easy. Oh, and during this interview, I had a brain lapse and completely forgot the two-child policy was called the two-child policy and called it a manner of completely incorrect things. So, you know, enjoy that. Anyway, Alison was brilliant to talk to, and I hope you find this interview as useful as I did. Here's Alison. So child poverty in the UK is now at its highest level since 2010 and uh, it's set to increase. What exactly is the sort of definition or the the guidelines of the term child poverty? Okay, so um, the actual, if you look at a definition of poverty, you need to look at definitions like the one Peter Townsend came out with, who's one of our founders. So basically what that's about is that people are poor when they don't have the resources to be able to have the same kind of diet or participate in activities or have living conditions that are normal, customary, uh, or, you know, what's widely encouraged and approved in the society that you live in. So there's various ways you can then go about trying to find out, well, so how many are there then? And so you look, obviously, because it's about resources, you look at people's level of income, you look at uh, whether people are deprived of certain things uh, as a result of of not having a high enough income. And you also look at things like costs, how much it costs to live, what's happening to housing costs and childcare costs and things like that. But the, the simplest Um, measure that we use in the UK, and it's the one that was enshrined in the Child Poverty Act in this country until it was abolished last year, um, is to look at what proportion of of average income people have. So if you look at the the medium, which is the middle level of household income, we take 60% of that and say that people below that level are on an unacceptably low income. And so that's the indicator that keeps getting reported. So that data comes out every year. And the latest data showed that child poverty rose by 100,000 on the last uh, information, and that since 2010, it's risen by 400,000. So there's definitely a rising trend of child poverty now. Wow, that's a, a massive rise uh, since yeah. 2010, isn't it? And, and, and does that, um, the definition, does that, you said it's 60% of the uh, sort of medium in- income, is that, yes. does that change depending on where you are in the country or is it kind of an overall UK figure? It's, it's, it's a UK figure, but it does break down for regions. So you can get regional figures. So it's different for Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and different regions of England as well. 
Right. And 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 I'm guessing that as well that you're obviously so there's many other factors that kind of contribute to uh to child poverty um but yeah. if someone is below that level and and uh, classifies child poverty how does that affect um the child how does that affect the family and their future prospects what what sort of uh, results are we seeing from that yeah so we know it's a problematic level of income uh there there have been we actually have a mountain of evidence for the UK about this there was a really big study done at the LSE that looked at about 40,000 studies about children's outcomes and the causal factor that was leading to poorer child outcomes was low income so children on this level of income are likely to have poorer health lifelong limiting illnesses, they're likely to die younger, they're generally about nine months behind their peers in education, they have low self-esteem and they're sort of pessimistic about their futures. Um, If you look at their families in the here and now, they're families who are struggling to put food on the table, they're probably getting into debt, Um, children are going to school and are unable to participate in the way other kids do, so they don't go on the school trips. Um, They can't afford the uniform. That leads to kind of bullying and the child withdrawing. There's all sorts of um, information about how this affects families. And the answer is it's bad. Because, I mean, we've had that, uh, I personally think, quite ridiculous narrative for some years now about you've just got to try hard and be a hardworking person, all that sort of nonsense. But it it seems if you have this difficult start, it's very, very hard to get out of that. It really is. And uh, also, I think... The other thing that people ignore is they think we're talking about a group of people who are out of work, when actually two-thirds of poor children live with a working parent. So that one, at least one parent is out working hard, um, and they still can't uh, make ends meet or be able to participate in the same way that other people do. Um, and that's the tragedy today, and that's changed. You know, um, In about sort of 2000, it was about 50-50 out of work and in work, and now it's very much uh, about low pay and people working but still not able to have sufficient income to live a reasonable life. And is that also, I, I mean, I assume, and we'll get to that in a second, but I assume there's many factors that are they're leading to this, but there's uh, an increase in people that are having to have more than one job, an increase in people on the sort of yeah. gig economy, and I'm guessing yeah. parents not being able to be around because having to work so much is a contributing factor. Exactly. And, you know, the research I was referring to earlier about showing that low income has a causal relationship with poor children's prospects. Um, one of the things that, that it suggests is the, is, the, is the factor that kind of causes all of this is, is parental stress and anxiety, which kind of not surprising, really, that if you're struggling on a low income, and like you say, doing more than one job, working in an uh, insecure labour market, then it's, it's very, very stressful. And it's very hard to, to parent or, or have time for your children in those circumstances. And we've seen a massive change in the economy over the last sort of 20 to 30 years and uh, kind of good, well-paid jobs in the middle uh, of the economy have kind of disappeared. There's there's well-paid jobs at the top and at the bottom there's a lot of um, low-paid, temporary, insecure jobs and that's where lots of people find themselves. So the issue isn't that they don't want to work, they are working. Um, when they go on to job seekers allowance, they're not there very long. Most people leave job seekers allowance between uh, nine to 12 months. They've, 90% of them have left and they're back in the economy. The problem is the jobs they're in are insecure and the labour market spits them out from time to time and they find themselves back on benefits. So there's a 
a big sort of level of insecurity at the, at the bottom. Um, also, wages have been stagnating for years now, and there haven't really been big rises in income, particularly at the bottom. And since the 2008 recession, wages really haven't caught up, and they've only really just started to rise now, but they're still a long way behind. So there's all sorts of problems for people on low pay. And is there also um, to do with policies as well? Because there's been a number of quite serious benefit cuts. Um, there's been housing benefit cuts. There's been, you know, welfare cuts. Um, you know, is is the is is this also an effect of some of the um, social care kind of cuts yes. as well? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, there's it, this is it's it's been really serious now since since 2010. We've had. Uh, first, there was 21 billion of cuts to benefits and tax credits announced, and then a further 12 billion of cuts announced in the July budget of 2015 by George Osborne. That's a massive amount of money being taken off, basically the poorest families in the country. Um, so, not surprisingly, we're seeing child poverty rising. Um, we also know that the um, impact of these cuts has been very unevenly distributed. So. We heard from the government that, you know, those with the broadest shoulders would bear the biggest burden, we're all in it together, etc., etc. But actually, what we've seen is that the whole of the bottom half, the poorest half of the income distribution is now worse off, and the whole of the richest half is better off. And they've benefited from tax breaks. Uh, in many ways, it's been sort of, you know, reverse Robin Hood. You know, it's been taken from the poor and given to the rich. And which of these uh, in particular, I mean, we've had a whole new raft of cuts. Uh, they're coming in this week. By the time the uh, listeners will be hearing this, uh, they'll, they'll be in effect. Um, I mean, how badly are they going to affect things? I think there's been cuts to child tax credits. And there's also been bereavement cuts, which Theresa May has is, is backed saying, oh, it's helpful to the taxpayer that people are going to be grieving and suffering. It's bizarre, uh, a bizarre stance to take. But um, how much of an effect is this going to have to to the increase in child poverty? So uh, the impacts are likely to be huge. Uh, just just the cut to uh, you know the two child policy, which says if you have a third child, you won't get any money for them. That those families lose two thousand seven hundred and eighty pounds a year, and we reckon that will push about two hundred thousand children into poverty. Um, if you look at all the cuts that have been made to universal credit, because this was the government's flagship new benefit system that was going to solve all the problems. Um, all of those cuts together to universal credit uh, are going to lead to about a million more children in poverty. And the Institute for Fiscal Studies is now saying that by 2122, uh, there'll be about 5.1 million children in poverty in the UK. Um, and at the moment, it's four. So you can see that it's going to go up by more than a million. That's that's uh, terrifying. And it's, I mean, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> Really is, and, and the just the the, the third child. Uh, I can't remember what the, you call the policy there. The, the third child tax credit cut is that is that for people that have already got three kids or more, or is that going to come into effect for people about to have a third child? How does it work? Yes. The two child policy uh, will affect people coming onto universal credit in future because people who are on it now are protected, but that means that people who are currently making decisions about whether they have a third child. And let's face it, you don't always um, plan these things. Sometimes children come along. There's no method of contraception that's 100% uh, effective. 
Um, people are probably making these decisions now whilst they're comfortably in a job. But no one knows what will happen to them in future. You could lose your job, be made redundant, become very sick. Your partner might die or they might leave you and you find yourself in contact with the benefit system. At that point, you won't get any money for your third child. Um, and that applies to tax credits and it applies to universal credit too. Um, I mean, it's an incredibly unfair policy. So just because you have two siblings, you don't count for anything. No money will be given for the third child. And that's a massive departure in British social security policy, that we will have a benefit system that doesn't respond to need, that doesn't take account of, of what the family actually needs to live on. Yeah, it's a sort of complete erosion of of any sort of safety net, isn't it? There's, yes. I mean, what do people what what are people meant to do if they find themselves in that situation? Because it it sounds to me like that you're an absolute dead end if that happens to you. Yeah, I I really don't know, and the government doesn't answer these questions. It's made some exemptions for things like multiple births, um, adoption, and foster care, but the problem is. Modern Britain, you could have two people who are separated with two kids who want to get together. What are you supposed to do? Get rid of two of them? Um, you know, you you become a large family overnight, so-called. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a real disincentive for people to form blended families. I mean, and there's an incentive, you could argue, for people to separate and, and split families up. Um, I mean, it has all kinds of appalling consequences. Um People will just have to live on less money than they need. And that means more and more kids who are going to be suffering uh, really bad outcomes in life, families who are really struggling, kids who don't eat properly. I mean, it just is such a bad idea to do this. If, if only because it's hugely expensive. And we commissioned Loughborough University a few years ago to calculate how much it costs to have such high levels of child poverty like we do in the UK. Um, and the answer came back, it costs about £29 billion pounds a year. Wow. Because, because social services and uh, public services have to respond to families. Uh, it costs you in benefits, it costs you in loss tax uh, and, and national insurance intake from the government. It's a really bad idea. So, I mean, this is, uh, and I'm, I'm sure if you had the answers, uh, you know, I'm sure if any of us had the answers, we'd be able to do something about it. But if, if it's costing the country that much to deal with it, why are these cuts happening? Is it just for ideological reasons? I mean, where, it doesn't seem to me like there's any benefit to anyone uh, from these sort of things going ahead. I agree with you. I think it's bad for absolutely everybody and it's bad for society in general. Um, I think the reason that it's happening is because they can. And, of course, we've had the whole um, austerity uh, measures and actually the biggest burden has fallen on the poorest families, as I suggested earlier. Uh, and it's, they've found that it's politically possible for money to be taken from the poorest families, and that's absolutely tragic. Um, I think people will start to realise how negative this is, because I think the problems that will arise from this will become more and more apparent and more and more obvious to people in their own families. Because, of course, you know, if you look at something like universal credit, nearly half the children in the country will be entitled to this at some point. And I think people will start to realise that it's not some group of people who don't want to work that are being affected by these cuts. It's people like them. 
It's their family and friends uh, who are coming into contact with the benefit system. You know, many, many people who uh, are in low pay need to claim tax credits or in future universal credit to top up their earnings. And so they're going to be affected by these cuts too. And I think that's perhaps what people don't realise, that we're talking about a, a large section of the population and we all should be worried about this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back with Alison in a minute. But first... You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. You cannot be serious. You cannot be, you cannot be, you cannot be serious. Syria. And yes, I'm aware that that jingle perhaps isn't the best jingle for a subject as serious as Syria. But trust me, it's ten times better than the version I deleted that involved me singing Syria to the West Side Story song Maria. Think yourself very lucky. If you remember back in episode 34, I interviewed Dr. Marcus Papadopoulos, who... Uh, how to put it lightly, had the view that Russia were pretty much the saviours of Syria, despite the fact that they'd killed more civilians than ISIS and the coalition forces put together? Now, I wouldn't recommend necessarily that you go back to that interview, unless, you know, you really like hearing opinions that you might not hear on television or really, well, anywhere except on Russia Today. Uh, but on that episode, I did, for balance, a bit of background on why Syria is where it is now. So if you haven't heard that, skip all the bits where I naively panic, realising I'm talking to a pro-Putin man shouting at me. God, it was so very stressful. Um, Skip all that, just skip it, and head straight for the informative middle bit. And as it's such a big concerning situation, I thought this week we needed to catch up. Not with that guest, thankfully. Uh, I couldn't go through that again. But, I mean, on the situation itself. If you remember, the story so far is that the rebels are fighting Assad and his forces because he's made life shit for Syrians. Sure, I'm paraphrasing. Assad is fighting the rebels because he thinks, and technically he is, the legitimate leader of Syria. The rebels and Assad are both fighting ISIS because no one likes ISIS, probably not even their mums, they're total dicks. The UK and US started helping the rebels but stopped short of actually helping them against Assad and instead aiming to help them against ISIS first. Russia is helping Assad fight everyone. The US and UK and Russia were trying not to fight each other, though, because that's how big wars involving white people and nuclear weapons start, and no one wants that to happen because we have to take those ones seriously. 
And in the middle of it all are civilians who are trying to escape the country only to find that no one wants to take them in because it's only okay to empathise with people in shitty situations if you don't actually have to do anything about it. But I can't believe that Easter egg hunt didn't have Easter written on it except where it did, right? Right? So, fast forward to last week where over 80 people were killed in a horrific chemical attack in Khan Shikun in northwest Syria. While it's not been 100% confirmed what killed them, the symptoms are those consistent with a reaction to sarin, a nerve gas that is really, really nasty. And that is the sort of understatement akin to saying Piers Morgan is a bit of a twat. One report says uh, of the 89 or so people who died, 33 were children, 18 were women, and very few, if any, were actually rebel fighters or Al-Qaeda-linked jihadists that control the area. So it's really quite horrific. And if any of you are unfortunate enough to see the pictures pop up on your social media, you know that they were quite disturbing. Now, the Syrian government has denied that they dropped those chemicals, although they did also deny several other awful, very similar chemical attacks in 2014 and 2015, which since then the Organisation of Prohibition of Chemical Weapons has said definitely, definitely was them. Russia have said that it was a Syrian army plane that flew over the area, but it dropped bombs on chemicals that the rebels had and released them, which only really makes sense if you ignore all the actual facts that the chemicals that they are likely to be would have incinerated immediately, and therefore that definitely couldn't really have happened. Bearing in mind that Assad is also the man who ordered his army to fire on civilians because they were protesting that he wasn't dealing with the famine in the and the collapse of the Syrian agricultural system and the problems with all the city overcrowding, it's not exactly out of Assad's ballpark to be that sort of evil arsehole. And would you believe it that now, this is where it gets really complicated. I know! As a result of the attack last week, US President Donald Trump waded into the situation like a bull wades into a china shop to have a browse for a tea set. Of course, with every decision Donald Trump makes, there is a tweet from a few years ago proving he was previously against it, as Trump is a man with either a goldfish memory or a sense of conviction weaker than Harrison Ford's flying abilities. Apparently, all those times Donald Trump said that Obama should stay out of Syria, he only said that because he wasn't president at the time, according to his deputy assistant. I mean, I plan to use that excuse for everything I say that I contradict years later. That should work, right? What? I said kettle chips camembert flavour tasted like a dog had been sick into a colostomy bag, and yet now here I am eating a whole packet of them. Well, I wasn't president when I said that, was I? So... Now, Trump says he ordered an airstrike on a Syrian airstrip because he was prompted by the deaths of those beautiful babies, calling those who died the children of God. These are the same people he's previously said might be ISIS, though I guess this time round he didn't state which god they are children of, so perhaps he's just converted to ISIS, uh, which, while completely unlikely with Trump, is also entirely likely. But is actually quite unlikely. But is also a little bit likely, because you just don't know. You just don't know, do you? The US did send a warning that they'd be bombing the Syrian airstrip, giving particularly Russians time to get out, and losing the airstrip itself probably isn't all that big deal to Assad, especially as reports say very few of the missiles actually hit their targets, which is a perfect analogy for all of Trump's policies so far. But what it did do was show that Trump is definitely an enemy of Assad, which might mean he's an enemy of Russia, even though he's highly likely a friend of Russia, and it means that the press backed him, even though he's really not done anything except cause more destruction in an area full of destruction, and you almost wonder if Trump would be better for the Syrian civil war if he offered his services to Assad, as that way he'll probably collapse the entire system from within and make everyone bankrupt. Russia have now suspended their agreement with the US to prevent direct conflict between their air forces, and Putin has condemned Trump's strike, saying that they broke international law. You know, a lot like that chemical attack did. Yeah, I mean, it turns out, everyone's the bad guys. 
The UK backed the US because there's no way we want to risk losing out on repeats of friends. And Defence Secretary Michael Fallon said Russia was to blame for the chemical attacks and now says Assad can't be a leader for Syria when he's using chemicals to kill his own people. Especially when it looks like some of those chemicals were sold to Assad's father in the 80s by the UK. Because it turns out, yet again, everyone's the bad guys. Labour say Trump should have waited for UN backing, but otherwise agree that Assad should no longer be leader of Syria. Foreign Secretary and the man for whom the wah-wah-wah trumpet noise was invented, Boris Johnson, cancelled his trip to Moscow, which was the first trip by a UK Foreign Secretary in five years to Russia, and was originally planned because the UK were hoping to improve relations in Russia. Russia now say that those talks were a dead end due to the cancelled visit, not realising that actually telling Boris he can't visit is a far kinder and more cooperative gesture from the UK than actually letting him turn up and say something stupid and offensive. Now, instead, US Secretary of State and good friend of Putin's Rex Tillerson is going to go to Moscow where he'll sit with Putin and work out the best way to pretend they aren't friends, even though they are, while bombing things until Americans like Trump again. The UK are aiming to push for greater sanctions against Putin in the G7 meeting unless he cuts ties with Assad, which he won't do. The US have warned Assad against further chemical attacks. Iran have picked sides and joined in the party by saying with Russia that they could respond with force if their own red lines were crossed in Syria, which is awkward as I don't think there are any red lines in Syria as it's above the equator unless Indiana Jones flew over in his plane at one point, but I don't really remember. And the Russian embassy in London said if Moscow was given an ultimatum to take its forces out of Syria, it would result in a real war, because up until now it's just been a bit of a giggle and a pretend one in Syria, eh? I suppose on the plus side, a real war would mean that there were refugees everywhere and then no one could really complain about taking any in when they too are running away from war. So, to say things are heating up is a sort of understatement akin to saying Piers Morgan is a total shit rag. But while some people have said Assad is evil, and others have said Trump is evil, or Putin is evil, or the UK are being evil and idiots, it's important to remember that actually, they are all awful, and this whole situation is terrible, and in amongst this whole international conflict, everyone's forgotten about ISIS, who are also shit. And really, the only way to fix any of this would be to also airdrop in Kim Jong-un, Robert Mugabe, President Erdogan, Marine Le Pen, Nigel Farage, Katie Hopkins, Piers Morgan and Theresa May and just let them all fight each other with pugil sticks until they die while we let thousands of refugees seek shelter at our house behind their backs. I mean, I almost wonder why they don't just let me sort this sort of stuff out with ideas like that. What do you mean? It's because I belittled a horrifically serious conflict with a John McEnroe jingle and a piss-poor gladiator solution. What do you mean? And on that, hopefully not a bombshell, now back to Alison. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and I mean, it's it, it just seems to me as well very um, short-term planning because obviously these children will grow up and if they have had a, a, a struggle in their youth, life's going to continue to get harder. They're going to have to rely on more social care and, and, and benefits in order to keep them alive, I suppose. You know, it's going to just yeah. result in, in an increase, a further increase every year of more and more costs. Yeah, more and more damage, more and more costs, more children sort of failing in education and then everybody kind of coming in afterwards and saying, oh, well, we need to do something about this. Well, you know, really, they didn't need to be in that situation in the first place. So uh, apart from, uh, you know, uh, the daydream scenario of the government suddenly you turning <laughs> on everything they've ever done, um, <laughs> what, um, yeah, what, you know, you never know, you can dream. Um, what's... Yeah. Can we do about this and what, what should be done to, to tackle the rise in child poverty? I mean, because this sounds, you know, and, and it's often the case on the podcast. I sort of speak to people and at the end of it, we go, oh, this is quite bleak and I feel quite helpless. So <laughs> what, um, what, what can be done about it? 
Well, do you know what? The good news is that the UK led the way on reducing child poverty until a while ago. Between 1998 and um, 2008, we had the biggest falls in child poverty in the whole of the OECD. Wow. So we've actually demonstrated in the UK that child poverty is responsive to policy. You can do things. Um, and what we did in the past was to... We, had, we, we developed childcare policies for the first time, Sure Start and Children's Centres... Tax credits were improved and, in fact, indeed introduced and improved. Uh, child benefit was uh, increased and so on. There was a whole range of policies in place, including policies to encourage parents into work. So, for example, the lone parent employment rate rose from 45 to 57% over that period. Uh, and it's now up at 66 So lots of positive things happened as a result of deliberate policy. Unfortunately, we've now abolished the Child Poverty Act that drove quite a lot of that activity, um, and we've gone into austerity and reversed a lot of those policies. So a lot of those increases in benefits and tax credits that helped families have now been taken away. But I think, basically, we've, all, we've got a blueprint. We know how to do this. We've just stopped doing it. Um, so, I mean, the very first thing you need to do is you have to restore the value of family benefits. Um, these have been frozen, again, for four years from last year, and they've been frozen on and off since 2010. And in, actually, that's the area where the government makes the most savings, by freezing benefits. And we're just about to enter a period of very high inflation again. Um, and so for these families, that's absolutely devastating. So the least they can do is to lift the freezes. Secondly, they need to restore the value of children's benefits. Uh, and then uh, thirdly, we need to look at all the other um, damaging cuts that have been made. If you, As I said before, if you reverse them all, you would lift a million children out of poverty. Um, so, you know, we have to campaign hard to make these arguments. Uh, and there are things you can do about costs. I mean, families now face huge um, rents um, and huge childcare costs. And there's more that the government could do to help with that. Um, so, you know, all in all, we need another child poverty strategy. We, need, we, know, we, we know this works. Uh, we just need to do it again. Sure. And, and I mean, just uh, you mentioned there the childcare costs because they did bring in the the certain amount of free hours of childcare yeah. was that last year, but I'm guessing that wasn't anywhere near sufficient. No, I mean, it's, it's a very good policy. I mean, we're in favour of the free hours of childcare, and that was one of the things that came in with the childcare strategy um, uh, back in 99. Um, it, it's, it's, it's an important policy. It helps families who have three- and four-year-olds, but sadly not all children are aged three and four. So... <laughs> They have a tendency to grow up. Oh, so um, selfish of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's only a minority of families that will, that will sort of benefit from that. So um, the rest of childcare costs need to be dealt with in a, in a different way, and it requires more public subsidy uh, to bring down costs. Um, so, yeah, you know, there are some good things that have happened. Raising the national minimum wage was a good policy. The free hours for childcare is a good policy. The government wants to reduce the gap so there are fewer disabled people, for example, who are unable to work. So there's, there's some things going on that are positive. Unfortunately, 
the size of the cuts to benefits and tax credits are so big, um, I think it's going to be difficult for those policies to have much traction. Uh, in a way, you're kind of tilting to the wind, aren't you? <laughs> if you're actually taking so much money off people that they're seriously struggling, to then say to them, right, we're going to do these few things that are going to help you. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's just too small. Yeah, sure. They just become kind of token <laughs> gestures rather than uh, an yes. actual solution. Um exactly. And what are, what are you, you aiming? What are you, what are you focusing on at CPAG at the moment? What's the uh, you said the, the family benefits? Is that the main? I mean, that sounds like such an easy solution. Unfreeze them. Let's help yeah. a lot of people. <laughs> is that is that the main focus um, of yours at the moment? Yeah, that's kind of step one. You know, if you unfreeze benefits, and and once again we give decent kind of increases to to people when as inflation goes up, then that makes a lot of sense. After all, pensioners have got a triple lock on uh, their incomes, but we haven't done the same for children. Um, And children are everybody's futures. Children will be paying our pensions and working and putting tax into the economy when we're older. It doesn't make any sense at all to put them in such a difficult position. Um, Pensioners, I mean, children are nearly twice as likely to be poor as pensioners today. Now, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue that you should take stuff off pensioners because I think what we've shown again is it's possible to do a lot about pensioner poverty and it's come down dramatically. And child poverty was coming down dramatically too, but we've decided to stop doing that. Um, doesn't make any sense at all to me. No, not at all. I mean, do, do you know part <laughs> of it as well is that, the, you know, there's obviously a different um, language used. You know, you hear pensioner policy, that's one thing, but you hear benefits and lots of people immediately get on the kind of tabloid bandwagon of all oh, laziness and et cetera, et cetera. You know, is that okay. is that part of the hurdle that, you know, for the government to cut benefits, that seems to be more favourable to many of the newspapers? I think that I think that's exactly right, and I think we've got a, we've got a problem with the fact that the public has been led to believe that um, people who are poor are poor as a result of their own behaviour. It's because of drugs and alcohol and family breakdown, the strivers versus the skivers. Um, but actually, as I said earlier, two thirds of poor children live with working parents. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, people who are out of work tend to be out of work for very short periods of time. They're gone from the benefits, uh, out of work benefits within a year. And so people want to work, they move into work. Most low income and poor families are working. So we're told the wrong story about who we're talking about. Um, we're talking about people that we know. We're talking about people who are who are doing the right thing, but just not earning enough to be able to... Uh, you know, have have the resources to keep their families out of poverty. Um, if we could only get this other story out, uh, people might be more sympathetic to helping them. Absolutely, absolutely. I think we need many narrative changed uh, at the moment, um, yeah. personally. Um, so, uh, and, and earlier, uh, before we started recording, you mentioned to me about the uh, CPAG Campaigns Actions Network, um, Campaigns yeah. Action Network. So could you tell me a little bit more about that and how perhaps the listeners can get involved? Yeah, Um, If people want to get involved, then it would be fantastic if they wanted to become members of the Child Poverty Action Group. Um, If they don't want to, but they want to take part in actions, then they need to go to our website to find our action network. And that's on 
cpag.org.uk forward slash campaigns. And there we can tell you about things you can do, like writing to your MP or joining in Twitter actions and so on. Um, and it would be great if people would join us. Fantastic. I hope they do. Uh, and also, uh, just as um, something we like to do on the podcast is kind of, uh, I truly think the, the more that we can uh, research and find out about, the better it is for people's education. So if there's other than um, uh, yourselves, who would you recommend perhaps listeners um, look up, follow or read the articles of if they are interested in finding out more about how to tackle child poverty um, and the effects of these benefit cuts? Have you got any people in particular that you you would recommend? So there's another campaign called the End Child Poverty Campaign, which uh, is a coalition of organisations who all want to campaign along these lines. Um, there's about 150 organisations that are part of it, you know, all the children's organisations, trade unions, faith organisations. That's uh, another organisation that's worth following. Big thanks to Alison for talking with me. Uh, you can find more info and sign up to become a member of CPAG at www.cpag.org.uk. And they are on Twitter at CPAG UK or facebook.com forward slash CPAG UK. Uh, if you don't want to or you can't afford to become a member of the Child Poverty Action Group, uh, you can also join their network of campaigners, which you can find via the how to help section on their website. As always, if there's anyone you'd like me to interview or any subject in particular you'd like me to interview someone about, uh, do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Parpolbro group on Facebook or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or by whistling your message into a jar, sealing it shut and giving it to your postman or postwoman. They'll know what it means. They've been briefed. Trust me. Brexit In case you were too busy screaming at things that had Easter written on them that they didn't have Easter written on them, then I'm here to remind you that Brexit is still happening. No, no, I said Brexit is still happening. Yeah, and not only that, but it's really not happening how Theresa May said it would, although considering she never really said how it would be, that's not much of a surprise. But what she did say was that by the end of the two-year Article 50 process, we'd have a deal. And now it turns out that she said that actually that's definitely not what we'll have at the end of the two-year Article 50 process. Do you remember the whole no deal is better than a bad deal stuff? Well, it turned out Theresa May said that because we'll have no deal, and in a way that is better than whatever the sort of bad deal was that also included no deal but maybe also a kick in the teeth every time you visit France. It looks like the UK will gain third country status, which sounds sort of like it'll go quite along with our post-Brexit third world status as well, but what it actually means is that we'll be hanging out with Norway, Iceland, Switzerland and Liechtenstein, which, yeah, I always forget is a country as well. I mean, where is it? Have a guess. No, not there. Have a guess again. No, it's not there either. In fact, I don't really know where it is at all. But what I do know is that they sing their national anthem to the tune of God Save the Queen, but in German, so we can all hang out and be boring and irrelevant together. But I hear you cry, and don't cry, it's not that sad. Those countries are all in the EEA, and therefore have access to the single market and freedom of movement, but with restrictions and no say in how the EU is run, and have to pay to be in the EU, and therefore have a pretty shitty system compared with what the UK had when it was in the EU. I know, what are the chances? Well, look, so that is the deal until whatever it is that May actually wants is actually sorted out, or however far into the future that that's actually done. And what May does actually want is a good trade relationship that enables firms to have free access to the single market, which the EU Council document last week said can't really happen. 
And Theresa May also actually wants to continue trade agreements with countries that we've previously had with them through the EU, which the EU Council document also said can't happen. So it's very possible that by the day we leave on 2019, much will be very much the same, unless the EU says otherwise. So less taking back control, more giving the remote control to someone else who only lets you watch TV when they come round and turns it on the channel that they like. Can you imagine that? Going from full channel access to just all day homes under the hammer with no ability to turn over. Grim as fuck. Meanwhile, the idea of a truly global Britain appears to be one where Theresa May makes trips to Saudi Arabia to sell them fighter jets to use in the Yemen contravening all human rights codes. Which is a little bit similar to her trip to Turkey earlier this year to sell fighter jets to Erdogan, which is a lot like giving a burning stick to a child who's been explicitly screaming about how they'll set fire to the house. Meanwhile, in the last six months, Total Disgrace, Liam Disgrace, Fox Disgrace has visited Oman, Bahrain, UEA and Kuwait despite all their breaches of human rights conventions and this past week he was hanging out with Robert Duterte in the Philippines, a man who's known as the Punisher and not because he's a big fan of silly wordplay gags. No, this is a president who, as mayor of Davao City, personally killed criminals, including throwing one from a helicopter. He wants to bring the age of criminal responsibility down to nine years old, wants to bring back the death penalty, called the UN stupid, and said Barack Obama was the son of a whore. And Liam Fox said that they have a lot in common, which I'm guessing is presumably because people all over the entire rest of the world think they're both a total disgrace to their respective countries. So yes, a truly global Britain, in the same way, you know, bird flu was a truly global pandemic. I mean, you know, it was everywhere, but it only seemed to be causing trouble wherever it went. On the plus side, at least bird flu only really affected poultry, whereas our foul play was going to go everywhere. Who's the Punisher now, bitches? Pun- Punisher. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And that is all for this week's show. Um, big, big thanks to you for listening. I mean, if you weren't listening, it's just me, innit? I'm talking. It's weird. Um, and if you have enjoyed, please do chuck me a pound or two. Well, probably not chuck, as they now have 12 sides and you could have someone's eye out. Safety first. So please gently pass me a pound or two at patreon.com forward slash parpobro or ko-fi.com forward slash parpobro, kofi.com. And do drop me a line at parpobro on Twitter, uh, parpobro Facebook group or partly political broadcast at gmail.com about anything thing you like really or don't like or are ambivalent about you know say like watercress i mean what you know it's here watercress isn't it and that's fine but if it wasn't here would anyone actually mind i mean to think people are worried about if an egg has easter written on it when there's important shit like watercress to discuss really Thanks also this week uh, to my brother, The Last Skeptic, whose music I use for this podcast, and he gave me some swanky new beats for this week's show, which you've probably heard by now. Uh, I mean, you're at the end. It'd be weird if you hadn't. Um, he has an excellent podcast called Thanks for Trying, which you should listen to, and he's got a new single out called Drum Roll Please with Michael Payne, Scruff is a Dream McLean, and Al the Native. And yes, those are all real people. Uh, also, big thanks to Acast for adopting us into their giant home for podcasts, where partly political broadcasts will now be living, drinking other people's milk, and forgetting to flush the loo for the foreseeable future. I'll be back up in your well-rested post-bank holiday ears next week. Bye! This week's podcast was brought to you by the numbers 0 and the letters E-E-S-T-E-R, because 0 is the amount of times that I have said the word Easter on this Easter-free podcast. You're very welcome. Enjoy your zombie Jesus weekend! Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.